Welcome to the Harrisburg Brethren in Christ Sermon Series. สวัสดีค่ะยินดีต้อนรับสู่บทเทศนาของบท Harrisburg Brethren in Christ, where our vision is to be a thriving, diverse urban church sharing Christ's love and serving the needs of our local and global communities. And here's this week's sermon. We hope you enjoy it too. It's good to be with you all again this morning. It's a blessing, as it always is, for us to be gathered together as a body, as a family, to worship our God together. Amen. We're actually going to start off today with a movie clip. Um, you're in for a treat because this is one of the greatest movies ever made, The Lion King. Now, for those of you who disagree, you're wrong, and that's okay too. I still love you, I think, and you're still welcome here, even if you don't know good movies. I'm a fan of movies because I think I'm a fan of stories. I'm a fan of movies and stories because they often gift us the chance to look at the world around us, to see it as it is, or sometimes even to see it as we wish it would be. But I think the challenge for us is in these stories is to always try to find God at work. I had a friend and mentor who once taught me that our God is so imprinted onto our being that it's impossible for anyone to tell a really great story without telling God's story. Theologians call this the meta narrative, the big story. It was actually the same friend and mentor that said that much of his thinking on this actually developed watching Disney movies. Yeah, Disney movies, the good ones, not the junk the kids watch today, but the good ones I grew up on. For example, think about Beauty and the Beast. You may know the story. A young prince is cursed by his arrogance and turned into a beast. And for the curse to be lifted, the beast must what? Love and be loved. The curse also falls upon his servants, who are turned into household items that all just yearn to be human again. Again, it's love that breaks the curse, that doomed beast and his servants. Love sets them free. Love makes them alive, and love makes them who they were created to be. Do you hear God's story in that? Or what about Finding Nemo? You may know this story as well. Marlin and his wife Coral have the world they desire for their children, and then tragedy strikes. Coral and all the children are lost to a hungry barracuda. Nemo and Marlin survive. The overprotective Marlin suffers another tragedy as Nemo is lost. And in the rest of the movie, we learn the story of Marlin, the father who would do anything to bring his lost child back home. Do you hear God's story in that? A father who lives and breathes and works and moves and endeavors and does all he can with all his power and might so that his lost child can come home again. Do you hear God's story in that? And then there's my favorite, The Lion King. Not the scene we're going to show, but this one I want to talk about first. It's one of my favorite scenes. Remember that scene when Rafiki finds Hakuna Matata Simba living the problem-free, no-worries life? Only it's masked by the fact that he's still blaming himself for his past, like some of us tend to do. He's still blaming himself for his father's death. And what does Rafiki show Simba to help him find his true identity? He reminds him that his father lives in him. That his father lives on through him, and that he's who he's supposed to become depends on what. Remember who you are. Remember who your father is. Remember who you're supposed to be. Remember who you are. Do you hear God's story in that? Do you hear God's story in that? Speaking of the Lion King, here's our clip this morning.
Life's not fair, is it? You see, I, well, I shall never be king. <laughs> and you shall never see the light of another day. <laughs> and you. Didn't your mother ever tell you not to play with your food? What do you want? I'm here to announce that King Mufasa's on his way. So you'd better have a good excuse for missing the ceremony this morning. Oh, now, look, Zazu, you've made me lose my lunch. Ha! You'll lose more than that when the king gets through with you. He's as mad as a hippo with a hernia. Ooh, I quiver with fear. Now, Scar, don't look at me that way. Help! Scar. <laughs> Drop him. Impeccable timing, Your Majesty. Why, if it isn't my big brother descending from on high to mingle with the commoners. Sarabi and I didn't see you at the presentation of Simba. That was today? Oh, I feel simply awesome. <laughs> Must have slipped my mind. Yes, well, as slippery as your mind is, as the king's brother, you should have been first in line. Well, I was first in line. Until the little hairball was born. That hairball is my son and your future king. Oh, I shall practice my curtsy. Don't turn your back on me, Scar. Oh, no, Mufasa. Perhaps you shouldn't turn your back on me. Is that a challenge? Temper, temper. I wouldn't dream of challenging you. Pity. Why not? Well, as far as brains go, I got the lion's share, but when it comes to brute strength... I'm afraid I'm at the shallow end of the gene pool. <sighs> There's one in every family, sir. Two in mine, actually. And they always manage to ruin special occasions. What am I going to do with him? He'd make a very handsome throw rug. Sazu! And just think, whenever he gets dirty, you could take him out and beat him. <laughs> so this morning, we're going to talk about wisdom. More specifically, the two kinds of wisdom that James sees. The first kind of wisdom is an earthly wisdom that's unspiritual and even demonic. The second kind of wisdom is a heavenly wisdom that is pure and peace-loving, considerate and submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. It's easy to see the kind of wisdom the jilted scar chooses in that last scene. He has let bitter envy and selfish ambition. You know, he was first in line to the throne, and now he's pushed down the pecking order. So he's let the bitter envy and selfish ambition lead him to deny truth, which is that the king's firstborn inherits the kingdom. Scar's bitter envy, selfish ambition, and denial of truth destroys relationships. It destroys relationships with Mufasa and the rest of the family. It destroys his relationship with young Simba even before it's begun. Scar's bitter envy, selfish ambition, and denial of truth was evil, and it led to even more evil. But hey, I'm not here to give, you, give the whole movie away. You should check it out. I'm here, however, to say that if we're honest and we're introspective and we look in the mirror, we'll see that there's a scar in all of us. One of the reasons movies and stories in general resonate so much is that we don't have to try very hard to relate. Many of us know the truth that bitter envy, selfish ambition, and denial of truth destroys relationships. We have seen it in the world around us. We have seen it in our families. And if we're honest, we have seen it in ourselves. 
And many of us know bitter envy, selfish ambition, and denial of truth is evil and leads to even more evil. We have seen it wreak havoc and leave destruction and brokenness. We have seen this as well in the world around us, in our families, and again, in ourselves. That is the fruit of the wisdom that is earthly. That is the supposed and natural destiny of the worlds we see, the families we know, and the people we are. But is there another way? Is there a wisdom that bears much better fruit? Is there a real and even supernatural destiny for these same worlds we see, these same families we know and live in, and the same people we are? Is there? Why, yes, there is. And I believe that James helps us learn and know this truth. Let's pray together. God, our Father, help us to learn and know the wisdom that comes from you and not the world around us. The wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit and not our flesh. The wisdom that comes from the Son, Jesus our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to James chapter 3. We will be reading verses 13 to 18. I believe we'll also have it up on the walls in the front, so you can follow along there as well. In James 3, 13 to 18, we read, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness." So our passage this morning, James 3, 13 to 18, is actually the most important passage in all of James. Well, at least according to James who wrote it and in the way he structured his letter. But we'll get to that in a minute. First, I think we need to take some time to get to know James a little bit. Church tradition holds that this James was not only one of the most prominent and well-known of the apostles and leaders of the early church, but he was also the brother of our Lord Jesus. Now imagine that. Some of us know and grew up with sibling rivalry, but can you imagine growing up with Jesus as your brother? I can imagine it now. Mary and Joseph are about to head out into town for a few days, and, and they go, James, you need to listen to your older brother. He's in charge when we're gone. And James goes, oh, come on. Why is he always in charge? Why am I never in charge when y'all leave? What, is he God or something? Why, yes. Why, yes, James, he is. But yeah, James grew into a follower of Jesus the Messiah, which I think is one of the most undocumented or unrecognized miracles in the world. If you have siblings, you'll know this is true. Can you imagine having a sibling and then saying he's the Messiah? If you don't have siblings, you don't know, so that's all right. And after our Lord's life and death and resurrection, his ascension to heaven above, James actually becomes one of the early leaders of the church and a leader of the people in Jerusalem. James was beloved. In fact, James was so beloved that, you know, back then Rome was oppressing Christians and, and James was killed. And what's fascinating about James being killed is that Rome brought in a new ruler and not just the Christians, but all the people of Jerusalem rebelled against Rome because they said, this guy made a difference. This guy loved us. This guy we knew he was genuine. 
Imagine the kind of witness that when you leave, the world rebels because they know you will be missed. That was James. People in Jerusalem, Christians and non-Christians, admired his faith and voice and how what he believed was learned and known and how he lived. Imagine that. What we believe actually matching how we live. So much so that people in our houses, people on our blocks, people in our neighborhoods all know what we believe by how we live because they see it in our lives. Imagine that. James writes to a people in Jerusalem and beyond, Christian and non-Christian, who are largely poor and completely at the mercy of Rome and super rich people who both consistently took advantage of them. James writes to a people who are consistently being oppressed and taken advantage of that they honestly feel like violence in word or in deed is the least they could do. James' audience is tired, and as Sister Fannie Lou Hamer a decade ago, or a generation ago said, you know, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. That's what these people felt. Again, don't let anybody tell you that Scripture isn't living and active. Don't let anybody tell you that our God doesn't hear our cries or see our struggles. And, and don't let anybody tell you that in such a time as this, God's not going to show up because God always shows up. Amen? And though it may not always be when we want or how we want, though it may not be when we know we need it, when God shows up, it's always on time. Amen? So one of the ways God shows up for the people back then, and even we the people today, is through the faith, heart, and words of James. In this epistle that's really just a long sermon, a really good sermon, James says, I know that we are being persecuted. I know like we all know that this world we see is not as it should be. I know most days we all just want to scream or, or lash out in some kind of violent way. I know that we all know this. But I also know that our God is good. I also know that our God is faithful. I also know that our God is true. And with the Spirit's help, we can endure this, and even more so, we can triumph. We can so triumph that our faith grows, and we see a harvest of righteousness as people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen? James reminds them back then and all of us this morning that with the Son, Jesus, our Christ, we have a model of our faith and how we are to live and love and partner with God to usher in his kingdom. Amen? And the heart of all that James has to say is this. Choose heavenly wisdom. Choose the wisdom that comes from God. Choose the wisdom that is pure. Choose the wisdom that is peace-living. Choose the wisdom that is considerate. Choose the wisdom that is submissive. Choose the wisdom that is full of mercy. Choose the wisdom that bears good fruit. Choose the wisdom that is impartial. Choose the wisdom that is sincere. Choose heavenly wisdom. Amen? One thing I love about James, the man that was in this epistle that is, is that his call on followers of Jesus is always that are professing allegiance to God demands a matching lifestyle. For James, our belief must always match with how we live and how we love in deed and in truth. For James, it's not enough to say, I believe in Jesus. Your life must prove it. It's not enough to say, well, I have this thing called faith. Your life must show it. It's not enough to say, well, I believe in Jesus. I believed all my days. Does your life prove and show it? 
This idea, though, that we're going to dwell on this morning is what does it mean to choose heavenly wisdom? This idea of choosing heavenly wisdom is the one I want us to focus on this morning. I started off earlier by saying that our passage this morning, James 3, 13 to 18, is actually the most important passage in all of James. Well, at least according to James himself. We know this, and you can ask him when you get to heaven. He'll say, yes, Hank was right. We know this because of how James wrote and structured the letter. See, everything we write has a structure. A book is different from email, and both are different from letters. I mean, we can even talk about genres or types of books, types of emails, or electronic communication. This is the part where I was going to make fun of Pastor Woody, but he's sick or something. And even different types of letters. But nevertheless, everything we write has a structure, and we use that structure, right, as a vessel to best communicate our message. Most of us have realized that reading scripture, right? Genesis is a little bit different than Psalms, is a little bit different than Revelation, is a little bit different than Matthew. We see different structures, we see different genres as well. One trouble we run into, though, is when we assume that how we understand a style of writing today is how the biblical authors wrote. For example, we know that much of the New Testament is epistles or letters. So for some of us, when we think about a letter, we think of what? A greeting, a body, or a message, a conclusion, and then a goodbye. This is what we do for the epistles like James. We see the greeting, the body, or message, the conclusion, and then the goodbye. However, when we read these ancient letters only within our own understanding of how letters are composed, we are actually divorcing ourselves even more from the author and the audience back then. Therefore, for us, it's most effective to get a basic understanding of how people wrote in that time and culture. That is what helps us understand most how we're reading and how we're supposed to read this. So, for example, I think we're going to have a PowerPoint up there in a second. So, for example, it's important to know that James wrote his letter in a chiastic structure. Chiastic is both a word and a writing structure that is unfamiliar to us. But it's critical in helping us to understand what James was stressing. A chiastic structure is a literary device often used by Old Testament and New Testament writers. It says it right there. They use it to build up. We can go to the next slide. They use it to build up to their main point and then back from it in reverse order. So in the center, yes, the very middle of the letter was their most important point. Some believe this is where our statement, the heart of it all, or the crux of the matter, that's where it all comes from. The idea being that the most important thing we have to say is in the middle of all that we say. And this is how we can conceivably say thousands of years later that James 3, 13 and 18 is the most important passage in all of James. This is what he wants his audience to really know, and this is what he wants us to know. Simply put, it's the center of the entire letter. If we go to the next slide. So what you have in James is our passage this morning in the middle and in corresponding points on both sides of the center. This is what it all looks like, as you can see up there. As you can see, the center and most important section in our passage this morning, James 3, 13 to 18, where heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom are contrasted. Then working from the inside out, you have passages that highlight an uncontrolled tongue pictured, mirrored with an uncontrolled tongue in practice. Next, wealthy and materially better off believers mirrored with the wealthy and believers pursuing wealth. And lastly, the purpose of trials and the practice of true religion or faith mirrored with the purpose of suffering and the practice of true religion or faith. But why does all of this matter? Next slide. One, these letters were often delivered all at once and orally. 
So the audience needed markers to follow along so they knew where the writer was going. Now, you can barely see it there, but the scrolls back then didn't have our chapters and verses. They didn't have punctuation. In fact, everything was not only in capital letters, it was all squished together. So the reason the writers used chiastic structure was so the audience could know what was happening so it doesn't all just blur in together. If you don't think it's difficult, oh, I forgot. They also didn't have cons uh, vowels, all right? So I want you to go home and write this. Write a paragraph and then repeat the same paragraph. Take out all your punctuation, all your vowels, and then put them all in capital letters and put them together and then give it to your spouse to read it. It'll tell you how much they love you. It was really, really hard. So that's why they used the structure. Um, also, though, and even more practically, you know, the scrolls, as you can see in the picture, hopefully, the scrolls, you know, were pulled out from the middle and they were rolled, to get, they rolled out from the middle. So this writing side made it easier not just to follow along, but if it's in the middle where the scrolls began, as you can see in this picture, you can actually get the main point of the letter as soon as you open it because you're opening to the middle. Again, they did that for the slackers among us, right? You didn't want to read the clip notes version, you just open it, read the middle, you're good. But again, why does any of this matter? I had a college professor who used to love asking, thanks Keith, um, I had a college professor who used to love asking us, so what? I honestly don't think he cared much about your point, your belief, or even your argument, which to be honest hurt me because I cared very much about my point, my belief, and my argument. But he didn't seem to care. You know, I still hear his forever refrain in my head, so what, Mr. Johnson, so what? Well, our text, James 3, 13 and 18, lies at the center and heart of the letter. And because this is indeed James's most important point in the entire epistle, then I believe that is something worth taking time to focus on and work our way through this morning. Amen? James begins in verse 13 with, Who is wise and understanding among you? You know, the kind of question where every one of us would gladly raise our hand or even stand up, wise and understanding? Yes, that's me. Or maybe the more pious among us will take it a little bit lightly and say, maybe they might throw a little something like, with a little humility, you know, we're Christian, we got to add in humility. Who is wise and understanding among you? Yeah, I suppose. I suppose I would be the most wise. I suppose I would be the most understanding. Yes, that would be me. <laughs> but yeah, being wise and being understanding is something none of us would mind being identified as. You know, I remember my mom, God bless her. I think she tried to make sure I'd never have self-esteem issues by just convincing me of things until I wholeheartedly believed them. Like from the time I was born, my head was almost full adult size. It's a true story. We got pictures. I kid you not. It's on the internet, some of them. You got to look, though. I was glad, though, to see my 20s because when I reached my 20s, I finally started to grow into my head. Actually, when Harper was born, the doctor and the nurses scared us because they were concerned that she could have hydrocephalus, which is generally abnormal accumulation of fluid on the brain, water on the brain, it's more commonly called. I remember Sean and I both looking at baby Harper, then looking at each other, then looking at the doctors and nurses and being like, um, have you all not seen her father? <laughs> but anyway, my mom tried to overcompensate for my full adult size by literally convincing me that my head was so big because I was so smart and had so much knowledge in there. Now, some of you might call this suspect parenting. I call it survival. <laughs> Middle school was a little rough. And it worked because ever since then, preschool on up, I've thought of myself as very wise. The understanding part is what I've been working on every day since then. But yeah, we all like to think or would love to be considered as being wise and, and being understanding. 
The challenge for us in James 3 is that being wise and understanding is not based on intellect or IQ. Being wise and understanding is not based on education or what we have learned or what we remember. Being wise and understanding is not even based on life experience or what we have come to know through our experience or perhaps even through the experiences of others. No. No, for James, being wise and understanding is solely based on your good life as evidenced by deeds done in the humility that come from heavenly wisdom. You want to be considered wise and understanding? Well, good. But it's not based on how smart you are or how well you test. It's not based on all you know. It's not based on what you have learned. It's not based on what you've remembered. And it's also not based on what you've gone through. It's not based on how, what you've gotten smarter about or even better, your ability to see someone else go through something and learn better lessons than even they went through who went through that something. No, it's not based on that either. For James, being wise and understanding is solely based on your good life, evidenced by deeds done in humility that come from heavenly wisdom. So what is this good life? Well, remember Jesus and the one ruler? Remember the ruler proposition, Jesus saying, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I love Jesus' response. Hey, man, uh, no one's good except God. Besides, you know the commandments. But seemingly before Jesus can even finish that list, the ruler jumps in and says, oh, good. I've kept all those since I was a boy. Pause. Ever since I was a boy, I've struggled with this story, and it's really troubled me. Like, can you imagine looking into the face of the God of the universe, looking him in the eye and saying, yeah, well, Jesus, I've been perfect, so I don't need you to try to remind me of all the commandments. I'm perfect. I mean, ever since I was a kid, I've always been surprised that the ground didn't, like, open up right there and swallow the man. But I digress. Maybe that's what I would have done. I don't know, but I'm not God. Undeterred, though, Jesus asked him another way, trying to get another way to get to the man's heart. He turns to the ruler and he says, if you've kept all the commandments, you still lack one thing. Sell everything, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Later on in our passage in James 3, we see the characteristics of heavenly wisdom explained. So we'll get to that in a bit. But I think to answer what is this good life that shows heavenly wisdom, I think our only answer is not simply are we doing what our Lord commands, but also are we willing to live our lives surrendered to God? Always. Are we willing to surrender now and tomorrow and the day after tomorrow and the day after that, after that, after that? Are we willing to surrender our hearts to God? How about our hopes and dreams? How about our gifts, skills, and abilities? How about our resources? How about our words and deeds? How about our mind, our body, and our soul? Are you willing to surrender your entire life and being to God today, tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, and the day after that, after that, after that? Because here's the thing. Jesus seems to strongly state that is the only way to a good life. The only way to a good life today, tomorrow, and the days after is to surrender and keep surrendering. And always be willing to surrender your heart, all of you, your entire being, your entire life. Always surrender it to God. Always surrender it to Jesus. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. 
For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what they have done. The secret to a good life that shows heavenly wisdom leads your life is surrender. Surrender today, surrender tomorrow, surrender every single day after. So the question is, where do you need to surrender? Or is it, what do you need to surrender? Or maybe for one or two of us, it's who do you need to surrender? Pause. Let's take a minute or so to declare our surrender to God. To ask forgiveness for holding on to all the wrong things. To ask for the Spirit's power to surrender today, tomorrow, and the days after. Let's take a moment, even right now, to surrender our hearts, our skills, our gifts, our abilities, our hopes and dreams, all that we are. Let's take a moment to surrender. Amen. Thank you for that sweet surrender. I trust that the Spirit is in and with you all through those silent declarations. And I pray that God will not only forgive you for trying to hold on to everything else when you should be surrendering to him, but I pray that God himself will empower you to surrender and keep surrendering today, tomorrow, and the days after. Amen. The reason surrender is so key in the moment, in the hour to come, or, or even in the day we never see coming. The reason surrender is a key to a good life as defined and upheld by our Christ is because our natural tendency is to seek wisdom from this world. Left to ourselves, we become reliant on the flesh and not the spirit that lives within us. Eyes on ourselves, we see only me and forget that we're meant to live for we. James is very right to call bitter envy, selfish ambition, and denial of truth as earthly wisdom that is unspiritual, that is demonic. All of us know that bitter envy leads to jealousy that destroys relationships, that selfish ambition destroys communities we're blessed to live in and to interact with, and that our call almost always is more about we than me. Sisters and brothers, our call almost always is more about we than me. And if bitter envy leads to jealousy and destruction of relationships, and if selfish ambition destroys our communities, what then does denial of truth leave us? Well, all that is true is from God, amen? Our Lord Jesus himself reminded us of what? That he is indeed the truth. 
And the Spirit is the one who gives us wisdom that is from God. So to deny truth is to deny God. And when we deny God in this earthly wisdom, there we find disorder in every evil practice James warns of. Pause. Let's take a minute or so to ask God for forgiveness. To say to God, where there's envy within me, Lord, please forgive me. Where my envy has grown to jealousy that so easily enslaves me, Lord, please set me free. Lord, where I've denied truth, reveal yourself to me. Reveal your light to me, O oh God. Amen. Bless you, beloved children of our God and King. You know, Scripture reminds us if we confess our sins, our God is faithful and just and will forgive us of all our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And anyone the Son sets free, Jesus himself reminds us that we will be free indeed. And God has already blessed you with his Son. Amen. And God's already blessed you with the Holy Spirit. Amen. And the one we always forget, God has always and already blessed you with the community of saints, with the church, with your sisters and brothers. Never forget that God's blessed you with each other. Amen. Amen. May you now walk anew in the love and light of Jesus our Christ. Amen. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit impartial and sincere peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure then peace loving considerate submissive full of mercy and good fruit impartial and sincere peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What I love most about how James ends here is his clarity. What is the wisdom that comes from heaven? It is the wisdom that's pure and holy. What is the wisdom that comes from heaven? It is the peace, it is the wisdom that's peace-loving and considerate. What is the wisdom that comes from heaven? It's the wisdom that's submissive and full of mercy and bears good fruit. What is the wisdom that comes from heaven? It is the wisdom that's not limited by favoritism. It is the wisdom that's not limited by loving only those who love us back. 
It is the wisdom that's not limited by partiality, no. It is defined by our sincerity. And wisdom from heaven births peacemakers who sow even more peace and who together with God reap a great harvest of righteousness as more and more children come home again. James is clear. If you want to know what wisdom from heaven looks like, it looks like our Christ. And sisters and brothers, that is always our plight. Years ago, Christians started asking, what would Jesus do? Remember, we had cute little bracelets at all. I was so flashy and so, so stylish back then. I had matching ones for every shirt. I was the coolest. You know, we as proud Anabaptists have always had that question, though. What would Jesus do in the forefront of our minds as we journey through this life? Nevertheless, the clear direction here from James isn't simply what would Jesus do. It's not even what would Jesus look like, although that might get us a little bit closer. No, James's firm assertion here is simply this. Wisdom that comes from heaven looks like Jesus, and that's what you are called to look like. You're not called to ask what Jesus do. You're called to do what Jesus do. You're not called to say, what does Jesus think about this? You're called to submit to what Jesus said about this. You're not called to think about love. You're called to love as Jesus loved. So if you ask what Jesus do, that's good. If you think about what Jesus would do, that's good. If you picture what Jesus would do, that's good. But if you're a follower, a disciple, someone who lives to follow Jesus, then you must do what Jesus did. Amen? We're not simply to ask, what would Jesus do? No, with the Spirit's help, with the Father's faithfulness, we are to do what Jesus did and then watch as our God brings forth a harvest in our everyday scenes. Sisters and brothers, when we surrender today, tomorrow, and the days after tomorrow, and when we surrender in this moment or in the hour to come or in the day we never see coming, surrender is the key to good life defined and upheld by Jesus. When we ask for forgiveness, for envy within us, God begins to purge us of all that unrighteousness so that it doesn't give birth to jealousy or other sin that so easily enslaves us. And when we are free indeed, we are being led by the love of God and by the light of our Christ. So much so that our lives show only the wisdom from heaven because we are living, walking, and moving in the spirit and with our God and King. But sisters and brothers, hear me on this. We are all called to display the wisdom from heaven. So we're going to pause again because I want us to take time to ask God and to be honest. This is between you and what the Spirit puts on your heart. But you're going to ask God these simple questions. Lord, where do I need to be more pure? Where do I need to be more holy? Where do I need to be more peace-loving? Where do I need to be more considerate? Where do I need to be more submissive? Where do I need to be full of mercy? Who needs to see my good fruit? Where do I need to show no impartiality? Where do I need to love the people, not just who love me, but who do I need to love that doesn't love me? Where do I need to be sincere and genuine? Where can I be a peacemaker? For Jesus himself reminded us that the children of God are blessed because they are indeed peacemakers. Let's take a moment and ask God, where do I need to do more to show the wisdom that comes from heaven?
Amen. That final ask was for our God to make us pure in thought and in actions, for our God to make us peace-loving in word and in motives, for our Lord to make us considerate in not only seeing the humanity in others, but seeing each other as God sees us. C.S. Lewis reminds us that if we truly saw one another, the person to your right and to your left, as how God sees them, we would be stupefied to worship them. That's how God sees his children. Is that how we see one another? As the workmanship created in God, good, in his image. Are we willing to live lives worthy enough that proclaim that Jesus came? My prayer is that the Spirit teaches us how to submit to one another. Holy Spirit, help us to be full of mercy and bearing good fruit. I'd like to invite Andrea and the rest of the team up. I'd like to invite the intercessors up for prayer. We will pray for you for anything and everything, so please come up. But as we sing this song, as we go through this week, may our prayer be, Lord, let our love be impartial. Let our faith be sincere. May we be the peacemakers who reap not only a harvest of righteousness, but we be people who live lives that long to proclaim that Jesus is our only Lord. Jesus is our only surrender. Jesus is our forgiver, but Jesus is also the one who makes us like him. Amen.
But God, we thank you that you are indeed awesome. And we are full of all that the God who's the God of all and everything is the one who desires to commune and walk with us. God, help us this morning to seek the wisdom that comes from heaven. Help us to surrender, to have the good life, to give all of ourselves to you, all of our life and being to you. Help us to ask for forgiveness, to not drink the poison of envy or selfish ambition that destroys ourselves and relationships and communities around us, but help us to be released and set free so that we're free to love and work for your kingdom. And God, these characteristics of wisdom from heaven, peace-loving and considerate and kindness and submission, Lord, let it be seen in our everyday scenes. Let it be seen in our lives. Let us live like our Jesus. Let us not only ask what Jesus would do, but help us to answer the call and do what Jesus did, to love and bring honor to our God and Father. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. God be with you. Joy like a fountain. 